Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn again to 1 Corinthians as we continue our study of chapter 15. Our text this morning will be verses 20 to 28. As we continue in this great chapter on the resurrection, Paul writes as he's moved by the Holy Spirit, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are in are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is ex accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we walk through this text this morning. Father in heaven, again we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher. I pray that as we listen to this, we will be encouraged once again by what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And so I pray that you would protect your word. I pray that again, that you will use it to conform us more to the image of your son and that you will be pleased in our worship here this morning, I pray in your name, amen. Well, again, we've been going through chapter 15 on the resurrection, and we said at the very, very beginning of this that the reason he's writing this chapter is not primarily to convince us of Christ's resurrection, but rather to convince the Corinthians of their own resurrection. And so as he started through this chapter in verses 1 to 11, he started really with the idea that they had already believed in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had accepted the gospel, a gospel that contained the fact that Jesus Christ had been resurrected. And Paul, like all good teachers and like all those who are trying to convince others, he starts with common ground and he says, listen, you say there's no resurrection of the body, but he says, wait a minute, you already believe that Christ is raised. And in fact, he, as he continues on in the next verses, in, in verses 12 to 19, he again gives us the consequences of not believing in bodily resurrection. In other words, if Christ not be raised, there's problems here for you. You're still in your sin. And so he says, listen, you need to understand, if Christ not be raised, there's some serious logical consequences that come from that. If there's no body of resurrection, Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, you're in trouble. You've been preaching, we've been preaching a gospel that's 
really has no substance. You believed something that's not true. The apostles have been lying to you this whole time. Maliciously, really, because they would have known that Christ wasn't raised. They would have had to have made it up. And so he wants to convince them that Jesus, there are serious consequences if Christ is not raised. But now Paul says, but Christ is raised. In other words, you know he's raised. There's the fact that he's raised. And really, we're going to see three things that result or three assurances, three aspects, maybe we could say, of the resurrection that are applicable to us if Christ be raised. And he's simply going to say at the beginning, listen, if Christ is raised, since Christ is raised, guess what? His resurrection means you're going to be resurrected. He says the fact that Christ is raised means there's an, he set the, the order of resurrection. And in fact, he says, not only has he set the order of resurrection, he is also going to restore all things. The result of Christ's being raised is that he will restore all things back to God. And so as we go through these, these points here, we're going to be assured uh, that Christ's resurrection has application to us because it assures our resurrection, it assures the order in which we will be raised, and it ultimately assures our restoration back to God. And so we can take comfort in Christ's resurrection and its application to our lives. So Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. This is just a fact. In contrast to you guys saying that he hasn't been raised, in contrast to the fact that, that you have been denying that, Christ has been raised. And since he's been raised, he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, what I want you to notice is that this section here, he says he is the first fruit of those who are asleep. He's talking about believers through this section. His primary focus is not on everyone, but on believers. Because when he says the first fruits of those who are asleep, that is only a term that is used by for believers. It's not used for unbelievers. It says they have perished, they are dead. Here he says they are what? Asleep. So he's primarily dealing here in this section with believers. And he says Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. So what does he mean by first fruits? Well, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, we have a requirement at the Passover that before the harvest was made, before people took off their full crops, they were to take their first part of their crop and bring it as an offering to God and wave it before him. And often what they did is they would plant their crops and sometimes they would plant them over a period of time. In Leviticus chapter 23, they would they would plant these, they would plant their crops over time so that when they went to harvest, in case it rained or, or the weather was bad, 
they would be able to get most of their crops off. And so if you're also taking crops off by hand, you're going to need a little bit more time to get your crop off. And so when that first crop became ripe, they would take their crop and they would take it and they would take that first, a part of that first crop and they would give it as an offering to God as a thanks offering and, and uh, an acknowledgement that, cross, that the crops came from God and ultimately it was also a, a faith statement that there would be more crops to come. And so the idea was the first fruits meant that there was going to be more crop to come. In other words, it was, it was, it was the idea, here's, here's the first part, we're going to get more. And he says, Jesus is the first fruit of those who are asleep. In other words, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he is the first fruits of the dead, meaning there's more to come. There's more people going to be raised. And who's going to be raised? Those who are asleep. And so he says, listen, this is what's going to take place. There's going to be a resurrection in the future. And there's a promise that you will be raised because Christ is raised. Well, you might say, I don't know if he's the first fruits from the dead. Because I remember, weren't there other people who were raised from the dead? Didn't Elijah raise someone? Elijah? W weren't there resurrection in the Old Testament? Right? We, we remember there's a couple of fellows that didn't die who were taken to heaven. So what's going on there? Enoch and Elijah, they, they, they never died. They went straight to heaven. What about Lazarus? Jairus' daughter, the son of the widow with, and Lazarus. So there's many people who were what? Raised before Christ. So how can he be the first fruits if we've already got people who are raised? Well, first of all, we know this. Everyone that was raised outside of Christ died again, right? They didn't, they didn't live forever. They, were, they, were, they lived a life and they died. It says in Colossians 1.18 that he is the firstborn from the dead. In Revelation 1.5, it says he's the first begotten of the dead. So what do we do with that? Well, the word here is protokos in the Greek. It doesn't mean first in times of one, two, three, four, five. It doesn't mean chronological. It means primary. It means the best. It means the greatest one. Christ is not the first person to rise from the dead, but he is the greatest person who ever rose from the dead. And that's what Paul is saying. He is positionally the greatest of all. He's the first fruits, and he is therefore ultimately the guarantee of a resurrection and a harvest in the future. So he says he's primary, like he's the first begotten son. He's not, he is what? The, he is the one and only. He is, he, it is one of position. He is the unique son of God. And so he says here he is the what? 
unique. He is the first. He is the greatest to be resurrected. Well, you might say, well, I understand that Christ was raised and he was, but how does that work? How does, how does that actually apply to me? The fact that he died and was raised, how does that work towards me? How does that work itself out? How can one man die for many? Well, again, I am so grateful that you asked that question because he answers it for us here in the text. He says in verse 20 more, 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. In other words, he says there was, there was death that came by a man. In, in Genesis, we remember that Adam and Eve sinned and that they fell out of fellowship with God. That's why we, need, we take Genesis literally one through chapters 1 through 3, right? Without a literal 1 to 3, you don't have the fall of man. We, we talked about that in FOF this morning. But he says, for since by death came by man, by a man also came the resurrection. In other words, when Adam sinned, all those who are in Adam, all those who come after him, now have what? A sin nature. They have attributed to them the sin of Adam. He brought death to all. In fact, he says in, in, ver, in the next verse, For since by one man came death, by another man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So he says, all who are born in Adam are born in sin. They are, they are born to destruction. So that means all humanity. All. All means all here. All who are what? In Adam. In other words, all human beings who have ever been born of all time are born in Adam. They are born and they have attributed to them the sin or imputed to them the sin of Adam. And then he says this, because one man sinned and all died and because one man sin has been attributed to all. He says, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. Great. Everyone's saved, right? All in Christ, right? Made alive. Is that what he's saying? No. Because again, the key is that little word in, right? A locative of sphere, we would say. He's saying he, all who are what? in Christ, all whose life exists in the sphere of Christ are what? Made alive. And again here, he's not speaking primarily here of what? Spiritual life. He's talking about what? Physical life. Because he's in, in this area, he's talking about what? Resurrection of the physical body. And he's saying, look, all who were in Adam died. 
All in Christ are made alive spiritually, and because they're alive spiritually, they will be alive what? Physically. And so he says, this is how Christ's resurrection affects you. He died to pay the price for sin so that all who believe in him now have what his righteousness and therefore will now be what raised in him. And so Paul says, Christ's resurrection affects you because it guarantees that if you are in Christ, you will be raised too. You will be raised too. And it is necessary to be in him because no one here is made alive who is not in Christ. No one will have physical life and be with Christ in eternity who is not in Christ. So Paul says, Christ's, the first assurance we have is that we will be resurrected. The second assurance is that there is an order to the resurrection. He says in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ." the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at Christ's coming. So Christ is the first fruits, and then afterward, there's a time, a gap. The word afterward is an unresolved uh, time gap. We don't know how long a period. It refers to a time of separation, but at a latter time, they are Christ. And when is this going to happen? At his coming. So he says, remember this, Christ is raised, but there's going to be a period of time before Christ comes and we're raised again. Remember, we talked about those who have fallen asleep, are, they would have perished if Christ is not raised. And now he says, look, actually, they're going to be raised. They're going to be raised when he comes. So Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits. He rose out of the grave. He guaranteed that after a time gap, they that are Christ would come out of the grave. And when is he going to come? And when is this going to be at Christ's coming? So first Christ, that is the first fruits. Afterward, there's a time gap and we will be raised. The word incidentally for coming is parousia. In the Greek, it means presence. At his presence, when he arrives, when Christ arrives, resurrection will take place. So there's coming a resurrection then and a resurrection tied to the resurrection of Christ as death is tied to the sin of Adam. Now the scripture speaks about a resurrection, about a resurrection again and again in many places. Let me remind you, and don't try to follow this. He says in Luke 14, 13, but when thou givest the feast, call the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. Then he says in verse 14, And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot re recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed, when? At the resurrection of the just. Now there's an interesting word by our Lord. He says, look, when you see somebody poor and crippled and lame and blind, and you're blessed, the implication is you give them what they need even though they can't pay you back. 
And he says, guess what? The Lord is going to pay you back. And when's he going to pay you back? Not in this life, right? This isn't one of those things where you sow your seed and you say, God, I'm going to give you money. You know? And if I give you a, if I give you a hundred bucks, you're going to give me a thousand bucks. And if I give away my old car, you're going to give me a new car. That's not what he says. When is it going to happen? At the resurrection of the just. This is a special resurrection, a harvest. A harvest, I mean, a resurrection of the righteous, and they are Christ. John says in John 5, 28, Marvel not at, the, at this, for the hour is coming in which all the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they have done evil to the resurrection of den- damnation. So you have the resurrection of the just, a harvest time to life. Philippians 3.10, if by any means I might attain unto what? Out of the resurrection of the dead. And so there's coming a resurrection, a resurrection of the dead. In Hebrews 11.35, it says that they might obtain a better resurrection. And finally, Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed are the holy that are part of what? The first resurrection. And so Paul says there's going to be a resurrection, a resurrection to life, a better resurrection out of, uh, from the dead. And it's called here, what, the first resurrection. Now there are, if there's a first resurrection, it only makes sense that there are, what, two resurrections, the first and the second. The resurrection of the, re, of, of the just to be redeemed, the second resurrection of the unjust to be condemned. The first resurrection for the just, the second for the condemned. Now I know, I just want to make sure that we understand this. No matter what our eschatological view is, there's going to be a resurrection. And there will be a resurrection in God's order. And we can all agree on that. We can all agree that, G- that Jesus Christ's resurrection and is, the, is the grounds for our resurrection. We all can agree that there is an order to the resurrection and that he's coming. And we also have a resurrect- an understanding that all things will be given back to God. And I don't want us to lose those points in the details of this passage. I want us to, I want us to understand that on the, on the big picture, we all understand these things to be true. So he says there's a first resurrection. And I would understand that that first resurrection comes in four parts. In four parts. The first resurrection happens when Christ comes for his church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So Christ is going to come for his church and he will resurrect New Testament saints. Later on, you have the tribulation time and during the tribulation time, there's judgment and slaughter, all kinds of judgments of God 
and people die. And at the end of the tribulation, they will be, be raised. If you want to read that, it's in the chapter, Revelation chapter 3 to 5. It says that there is a resurrection of the souls beheaded for the witness of Christ, and they were raised to live and reign with Christ. Then there's a resurrection of the Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation. You say, why go through that? Well, verse 23 says, every man in his order. In other words, there is a sequence. Tagma is, in the Greek is a word order. It means sequence. It originally had to do with military lines. And it's here there's a secret, uh, sequence of resurrection. Christ, the church, tribulation saints, Old Testament saints. That makes the first resurrection. The second resurrection is of the ungodly and, the, and condemned and occurs at the end of the thousand years of the end of the kingdom of God when he gets all the rebels over and judges them at the great white throne. And so I would understand that though Paul is not, Paul is not making all of the details here, he is simply saying this. There's an order each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after those, those at his first coming, he will resurrect them. And then he says, then the end will come. Then the end will come. And here I believe that Paul is again talking about co the consummation and the restoration of all things to God. And he says this, And each then comes the end. And again, that we have a gap between God's first, first fruits, after that, those who are in Christ, then comes the end. And again, there's, this is not tied in immediacy. It can, there can be a time period with the word then comes the end. Now, the end here can mean the end of all things or it can mean the consummation of all things. And I think that's what he's saying here. We're coming to the end. Here's the, here's the end. Here's the end game. Here's the completeness, the teleos. He says, then when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy will be death and will be to be abolished. And in some ways, he begins at the end of this period and he says, here's what's going to take place. And then he'll describe it at the very end. He says this. Then comes the end. In other words, here's this last consummation of all that has taken place, of Christ's resurrection and his resurrection power and where it has led when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign. In other words, he says Jesus Christ must reign. There must be a time where he reigns. There must be a time where he reigns with power, put all his enemies under his feet. Now, if he must reign, the question is, is Jesus Christ reigning now? Is Jesus Christ reigning now? And the answer to that is, what do you mean by that? Is Jesus Christ ruling sovereignly over the world? Absolutely. Jesus Christ never stopped being God, even in his flesh. 
God never, Jesus never stops sovereignly ruling as God. Because if he did, then God is no longer sovereign. We know that. So when it says he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet, what does he mean by that? What is the kingdom? What is he giving over? Well, I would understand that what he is saying here is this. Jesus Christ will be handed the scroll of the world in Revelation chapter 20. If we got to find my notes here. In Revelation chapter 5, Christ takes the title deed, the scroll, the seven sealed scrolls, and he takes a title to the earth in his hand and he begins to unroll it. And it is a deed to the earth, and he unrolls and breaks his seals, and it pictures him taking back the earth, back to God, back to the usurp from the usurper. In Revelation 5.19 through chapter 20, the whole thing discusses how Christ takes back the earth and begins to establish his rule and how he subdues all authority, power, and dominion. In other words, Christ begins by in the, in the tribulation as he pour as he opens the seals and pours out his wrath, and as he and he starts to subdue everything that is against him, and he squashes the rebels. And he puts them under his feet. It's a term of, of, to do with subjection because kings were always elevated on their seats and subjects came and were below them by their feet. And it's like he puts his foot on their neck. He is sub subjugating them and putting them underneath them. And so he will again subject them to him. And so Christ will come and pour out that wrath. And then he will, after the tribulation, he will, he will come to earth and he will rule for a thousand years and he will rule them with an iron rod. And he will reign them and he will put all rebellion down and he will not put up with it. And he will, he will continue to rule on earth. And then there will be a rebellion at the end as Satan is loosed. And then he will squash that rebellion. And all enemies will be what? Subjected to him. And so he says the end comes. And the end comes when what? When he has abolished all rule, authority, and power. Everything that stands, every satanic power, every power that stands against God, Jesus Christ will ultimately rule for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet it was prophesied in the old testament that he would it would prophesied that the messiah would come to jerusalem that he would reign in jerusalem and that he would reign with israel in the land he must come he must fulfill what god has said
and he must put all enemies underneath his foot. And I would say this, the beginning of scripture tells us what's going to happen at the end. God's intent for the world was for, for, perfect, for a perfect man to rule over the earth perfectly as his vice regent. All through history, God has done that. He did that through Israel. Though Israel was a nation, they were also ruled by God and, and the priests and the kings and the prophets ruled in God's stead. And though that has been in abeyance, Christ will come back and establish the mediatorial kingdom on earth and he will reign here on earth and he will subdue all things underneath him. And he says the last enemy that will be abolished will be death. In other words, after all things have been put under his power, Jesus sits on the great right throne as judge of the living and the dead. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And so Jesus comes and he will rule and he will rule until he sits on the great white throne judgment and he will throw death and Hades, the last enemy of God and humanity into hell. Enemy is personified as Christ's enemy and the enemy of all mankind. So Paul says he will abolish death, that's the last enemy. He says, for he has put all things in subjection to under his feet. He quotes Psalm 8, 6 here. He says, God the Father has put all things underneath the Son. He has subjected all things to the Son. He's given him power to subject all things to himself. But just so you're not confused, he says also to be subject, um, except who that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to himself. In other words, Christ in his humanity is still subject to the Father. He is still subject to the Father. And he says, so you're not confused. Jesus doesn't, isn't ruling God the Father. Jesus as the God-man is subjected to God the Father. And then he says in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, that's Jesus Christ, then the son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God might, may be all in all. So he says, when all things are subjected to him, when Christ has conquered all things, when Christ has thrown death and Hades into the, into the fire, when the, when the new heavens and earth are created, he says, then he himself will what? Subject himself to the one who subjected all things to him. Now understand this. This has to be Jesus Christ in his flesh. This has to be Jesus Christ in his flesh. Because if Christ is subject to the Father, it's hard for him to submit his will to the Father when God has one will. And so he says, when this takes place, Christ will take that kingdom, that renewed earth, 
and all the redeemed of all time, and he will what? Give it to the Father. He will give it to the Father. And the one who has subjected all things to him so that God may be in all in all. In other words, Jesus Christ will then take up his rightful place in the Trinity and he will rule with God over the eternal kingdom forever. And he says, this is what Jesus Christ will do so that God may be all in all. In other words, Jesus Christ's resurrection of the dead is leading to this moment. It is leading to the moment where the redeemed church and all the redeemed of all time are in heaven under God in perfect fellowship with him, perfectly worshiping him, and God is all in all. And he says, if you take away bodily resurrection, you take away Christ's resurrection, which means now you have what? No one in heaven. And he says, Christ's resurrection has purchased this. He has now made it so that all things are subjected to God. And Jesus Christ will now rule in his place as the son in the Trinity. And so Paul, after giving us the negatives last week, now gives us the positives in full-blown sight. Christ is the one who's the first fruits, and because he's the first fruits, more will come. And he can do this. Why? Because he died on the cross, paid the price for sin, was resurrected, and all in him are now given his righteousness, made alive, and now will be resurrected to be with him in heaven. His resurrection is in order, first Christ, then those that are his at his coming. There's an order to the resurrection. And then ultimately, it secures the restoration of all things to God because it is when Christ is raised that he will come back and he will rule. He will subject all things, all authorities and powers to his, to his might He will overcome death. He will ultimately abolish death. He will make it so that we can live forever in heaven. And then he will take his rightful place on the Father's throne. And so we have this assurance of Christ's resurrection that we will be raised that we will be raised in his time and that we will be given to God and Jesus Christ in heaven and we will spend all eternity worshiping him in perfect harmony, in perfect worship with no fear of death, with no presence of sin, no power of sin, but simply the absence of it as we worship him for all that he is. And so God's redemption plan ultimately leads back to him. It, our resurrection leads back to him for his glory, for his worship, so that he may be all in all. 
Let us worship him that way this morning. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you that because of your resurrection, we are guaranteed to be made alive in Jesus Christ. We thank you that though we see those who are asleep today, we know that after a period of time, they will be raised, that they are not lost. And though we may perish, we will be raised as well. And we praise you that are you, you are working to subdue all things, sin, Satan, and death, that we too might be restored to you. So I pray this morning that we would look forward to that time when you put all things under Jesus Christ, when he gives all things back to you, and that we might worship you and that you might be all in all. And so I pray that we would live for you today in that way, I pray for your glory in your name. Amen.